Many of you have asked for it, and so I spent some of my paternity leave creating it, an introductory stoicism course. The best part? I've launched it using Gumroad's pay-what-you-want model. So if you want to pay $0, you can get the course for free. That's right, free. Learn more and enroll in the course by going to understandingstoicism.com. That's understandingstoicism.com. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform, and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it, and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which, from personal experience, I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Welcome back for Kaptan. Glad you are here. Today, we're going over letter 86 from Seneca, which is a little long, but not long enough for two parts. So we'll get through the whole thing today. It is entitled On Scipio's Villa. And before we start, I'd like to invite you to register for this month's workshop, which you can learn more about at actualstoicism.com. And I say this month's, but it will actually be the month of July. But whenever you're hearing this, in fact, we have workshops every month. So actualstoicism.com, $1 minimum donation to attend these workshops. If you can give more, that's great. If you can't, we don't want to price you out. And we hope you'll attend. Again, that's actualstoicism.com. Okay, let's get into Seneca's 86th letter on Scipio's villa. Here it is. I am resting at the country house which once belonged to Scipio Africanus himself, and I write to you after doing reverence to his spirit and to an altar which I am inclined to think is the tomb of that great warrior, that his soul has indeed returned to the skies whence it came, I am convinced." not because he commanded many armies, for Cambyses also had mighty armies, and Cambyses was a madman who made successful use of his madness, but because he showed moderation and a sense of duty to a marvelous extent. I regard this trait in him as more admirable after his withdrawal from his native land than while he was defending her, for there was the alternative— Scipio should remain in Rome, or Rome should remain free. It is my wish, he said, not to infringe in the least upon our laws, or upon our customs. Let all Roman citizens have equal rights. O my country, make the most of the good that I have done, but without me. I have been the cause of your freedom, and I shall also be its proof. 
I go into exile if it is true that I have grown beyond what is to your advantage. What can I do but admire this magnanimity, which led him to withdraw into voluntary exile and to relieve the state of its burden? Matters had gone so far that either liberty must work to harm Scipio or Scipio to liberty. Either of these things was wrong in the sight of heaven. So he gave way to the laws and withdrew to Laternum, thinking to make the state a debtor for his own exile, no less than for the exile of Hannibal. I have inspected the house, which is constructed of hewn stone, the wall which encloses a forest, the towers also, buttressed out on both sides for the purpose of defending the house, the well concealed among buildings and shrubbery, large enough to keep a whole army supplied, and the small bath buried in darkness according to the old style, for our ancestors did not think that one could have a hot bath except in darkness. It was therefore great pleasure to me to contrast Scipio's ways with our own. Think, in this tiny recess, the terror of Carthage to whom Rome should offer thanks because she was not captured more than once, used to bathe a body wearied with work in the fields. For he was accustomed to keep himself busy and to cultivate the soil with his own hands, as the good old Romans were wont to do. Beneath this dingy roof he stood, and this floor, mean as it is, bore his weight. But who in these days could bear to bathe in such a fashion? We think ourselves poor and mean if our walls are not resplendent with large and costly mirrors, if our marbles from Alexandria are not set off by mosaics of Numidian stone, if their borders are not faced over on all sides with difficult patterns arranged in many colors like paintings, if our vaulted ceilings are not buried in glass, if our swimming pools are not lined with Thassian marble, once a rare and wonderful sight in any temple, pools into which we let down our bodies after they have been drained weak by abundant perspiration, and finally, if the water has not been poured from silver spigots. I have so far been speaking of the ordinary bathing establishments, but what shall I say when I come to those of the freedmen? What a vast number of statues, of columns that support nothing, but are built only for decoration, merely in order to spend money. And what masses of water that fall crashing from level to level. We have become so luxurious that we will have nothing but precious stones to walk upon. In this bath of Scipio's, there are tiny chinks. You cannot really call them windows. Cut out of the stone wall in such a way as to admit light without weakening the fortifications. Nowadays, however, People regard baths as fit only for moths if they have not been so arranged that they receive the sun all day long through the widest of windows. If men cannot bathe and get a coat of tan at the same time, and if they cannot look out from their bathtubs over stretches of land and sea, so it goes. The establishments which had drawn crowds and had won admiration when they were first opened are avoided and put back in the category of venerable antiques as soon as luxury has worked out some new device to her own ultimate undoing. In the early days, however, there were few baths, and they were not fitted out with any display, 
For why should men elaborately fit out that which costs a penny only, and was invented for use, not merely for delight? The bathers of those days did not have water poured over them, nor did it always run fresh as if from a hot spring, and they did not believe that it mattered at all how perfectly pure was the water into which they were to leave their dirt. Ye gods, what a pleasure it is to enter that dark bath, covered with a common sort of roof, knowing that therein your hero, Cato, as Edile, or Fabius Maximus, or one of the Cornelii, has warmed the water with his own hands. For this also used to be the duty of the noblest Ediles, to enter these places to which the populace resorted, and to demand that they be cleaned and warmed to a heat required by considerations of use and health, not the heat that men have recently made fashionable, as great as a conflagration, so much so indeed that a slave condemned for some criminal offense now ought to be bathed alive. It seems to me that nowadays there is no difference between the bath is on fire and the bath is warm. How some persons nowadays condemn Scipio as a bore because he did not let daylight into his perspiring room through wide windows, or because he did not roast in the strong sunlight and dawdle about until he could stew in the hot water. Poor fool, they say of Scipio. He did not know how to live. He did not bathe in filtered water. It was often turbid, and after heavy rains almost muddy, but it did not matter much to Scipio if he had to bathe that way. He went there to wash off sweat, not ointment. And how do you suppose certain persons will answer me? They will say, I don't envy Scipio. That was truly an exile's life, to put up with baths like those. Friend, if you were wiser, you would know that Scipio did not bathe every day. It is stated by those who have reported to us the old-time ways of Rome that the Romans washed only their arms and legs daily, because those were the members which gathered dirt in their daily toil, and bathed all over only once a week. Here someone will retort, Yes, pretty dirty fellows they evidently were, how they must have smelled. But they smelled of the camp, the farm, and heroism. Now that spick-and-span bathing establishments have been devised, men are really fouler than of yore. What says Horatius Flaccus when he wishes to describe a scoundrel, one who is notorious for his extreme luxury? He says, Bucillus smells of perfume. Well, show me a Bucillus in these days. His smell would be the veritable goat smell. He would take the place of the Gargonius, with whom Horace in the same passage contrasted him. It is nowadays not enough to use ointment unless you put on a fresh coat two or three times a day to keep it from evaporating on the body. But why should a man boast of this perfume as if it were his own? If what I am saying shall seem to you too pessimistic, charge it up against Scipio's country house where I have learned a lesson from Agialis, a most careful householder and now the owner of this estate. He taught me that a tree can be transplanted no matter how far gone in years. We old men must learn this precept, for there is none of us who is not planting an olive yard for his successor. I have seen them bearing fruit in due season after three or four years of unproductiveness, 
and you too shall be shaded by the tree which is slow to grow, but bringeth shade to cheer your grandsons in the far-off years. As our poet Virgil says, Virgil sought, however, not what was nearest to the truth, but was most appropriate and aimed not to teach the farmer, but to please the reader. For example, omitting all other errors of his, I will quote the passage in which it was incumbent upon me today to detect a fault. In spring, sow beans then, too, O clover plant, thou art welcomed by the crumbling furrows, and the millet calls for yearly care. Now you may judge by the following incident whether those plants should be set out at the same time, or whether both should be sowed in the spring. It is June at the present writing, and we are well on towards July, and I have seen on this very day farmers harvesting beans and sowing millet. But to return to our olive yard again, I saw it planted in two days. If the trees were large, Agialis took their trunks and cut off the branches to the length of one foot each. He then transplanted, along with the ball, after cutting off the roots, leaving only the thick part from which the roots hang. He smeared this with manure and inserted it into the hole, not only heaping up the earth about it, but stamping and pressing it down. There is nothing, he says, more effective than this packing process. In other words, it keeps out the cold and the wind. Besides, the trunk is not shaken so much, and for this reason, the packing makes it possible for the young roots to come out and get a hold in the soil. These are of necessity still soft. They have but a slight hold, and a very little shaking uproots them. This ball, moreover, Agialis lops clean before he covers it up, for he maintains that new roots spring from all the parts which have been shorn. Moreover, the trunk itself should not stand more than three or four feet out of the ground, for there will thus be at once a thick growth from the bottom, nor will there be a large stump, all dry and withered, as is the case with old olive yards. The second way of setting them out was the following. He set out in similar fashion branches that were strong and of soft bark, as those of young saplings are wont to be. These grow a little more slowly, but since they spring from what is practically a cutting, there is no roughness or ugliness in them. This too I have seen recently. An aged vine transplanted from its own plantation. In this case, the fibers also should be gathered together, if possible. And then you should cover up the vine stem more generously, so that the roots may spring up even from the stock. I have seen such plantings made not only in February, but at the very end of March, the plants take hold of and embrace alien elms. But all trees, he declares, which are, so to speak, thick-stemmed, should be assisted with tank water. If we have this help, we are our own rainmakers. Of course, I do not intend to tell you more of these precepts, lest, as Agialis did with me, I may be training you up to be my competitor. Okay, let's first recognize that this letter suddenly transforms into a non-metaphorical explanation of how to plant olive trees, and that that was a strange way to end a letter that started nothing like that, but that's how it is sometimes with Seneca. But can we mention the absolute zinger in the first half of this letter? 
but it did not matter much to Scipio if he had to bathe in that way. He went there to wash off sweat, not ointment. I mean, damn, Seneca. Shots fired. Scipio didn't go to the bath to bathe off the scents and stains of luxury, of sloth, of opulence, etc. He went there to wash off the stains and scent of hard work, of effort, of meaningful duty. He wasn't some well-to-do, posh, yuppie, mistaking the difficulties of social climbing with actual work. He was doing real work. Others were just washing off their shame, so to speak. And that's the whole point of this letter, I think. And isn't it interesting to see this sort of we've-become-too-entitled-and-spoiled language from thousands of years ago? Look at our present time, and do you hear similar things being said of the current generations? This might lead you to thinking that this is just what old men do when they become old men. They complain about younger people. I think it's fair to say that that is the case some of the time. But Rome was at its peak during Seneca's life, was it not? The first century AD? And isn't it easy to see that perhaps the West has reached it in similar ways? Its peak, that is? Seneca talks of simple things no longer being good enough. For him, baths and windows and tempid water. For us, perhaps, flip phones and home-cooked meals. Are we on the same path? Rome lasted for, what, around 1,100 years, 600-ish BC to 500-ish AD? It found its peak 600-ish years into it? Have we in the United States found that peak 300-ish years in? Does that mean we'll find our collapse in another 200-ish years? We do, after all, seem to be moving at a faster clip these days, thanks to technology. With a jaded perspective, it's certainly easy to see how that could be the case. There's definitely a large gap between the upper-class elite and the lower-class working poor. We don't need to argue about the reasons, though they matter. But that gap can only get so large before everyone starts falling into it. Seems we're chasing security for ourselves these days more than we're looking to take care of the whole. So, yes, it's easy to see it in this jaded way. With a positive perspective, though, maybe it's not as easy. Maybe it's easier to feel that we're nothing like Rome. We're not making the same mistakes, and our outcome won't be the same. But that's not how I feel. I wonder how you feel, though. Are you positive about the direction we're going in? And I specifically mean America because I'm American for the time being. But I'm also asking you this if you're not an American, if you're in some other country. Are you happy about the direction? that your society, your culture, your local cosmopolis is going. You can join the Discord and chime in in the episode follow-up channel if you want to weigh in on that question. In either event, how many of us with an iPhone would trade that iPhone for a flip Nokia tomorrow? Not me. How many of us crank our ACs in the summer instead of opening the window and enduring the heat? Not me. How many of us bask in the toil of manual labor and find it to be good for us? I do, but how often do I find the opportunity to do that manual labor? Admittedly, not often. And when I do, or when you do, when we do, how urgently do we feel we have to wash off that stink and grime because if we don't, we're breaking some sort of social contract? How many of us have been on public transit and smelled the B.O. of a fellow passenger and thought, ugh, gross, I have, 
Is it gross? Is the olfactory indication of labor and effort that perturbing to us now? Of course, we should bathe and groom, at least in my opinion. But do we need to feel such animosity towards, again, those signs of toil, effort, and labor? I do think we need to return to more simple, more natural, more straightforward ways. And I try to do those things in my own life, and fail frequently in doing so, by the way, but is a return to simplicity practical anymore? Or is there a middle ground? Is there any way for us to slow down these days? Or is it too late? And do we need to? Or am I just another old man in a long line of old men who like to complain about the state of things? Join the Discord and share your thoughts. We'll be in the episode follow-up channel. I would love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you've not done so yet, consider following this podcast wherever you're already listening or consider reviewing us if your podcast player allows for that sort of thing. Thanks again. And until next time, take care. Take care.